Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible with you, let's turn to John chapter 4 as we're reading verses 1 through 10. And you'll find it on page 1651 of the Church Bible. And I'm delighted Kate Bruner is coming to lead us in our Scripture reading this morning. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This is the word of the Lord. Earlier this week, Monday and Tuesday, the staff at First Presbyterian Church went on a little retreat to the Billy Graham Cove up in Asheville, North Carolina. And we had just kind of a training seminar in the early morning, an equipping session going on. And it was a a fantastic time where we grew as a team, where we fellowshiped, where we shared stories, we cracked jokes at each other's expense, primarily Brian's, and we, um, we had a good time. We had a good time. So often we're so bogged down by the busyness of everything that goes on at First Presbyterian Church that we forget to kind of look up out of our ministries and breathe for a second and go out and get coffee and just chat. And so we had a good time together. About 10 o'clock Monday morning, 10 p.m. Monday morning, uh, I walked into my room and by God's providence, I had somehow wound up with a room all to myself. It's actually because Graydon Tomlinson came down with the longest symptomatic flu the CDC had ever recorded. It was very convenient. And I had this weird moment of clarity when I walked into the room. Um, Everyone else had already retired to their separate rooms, and I walked in, and the lights were off, so I flicked them on, and I realized that for the first time in about three years, I was alone. I mean, I was alone. Like, there there was no wife there. She's in the room, so I'm going to tread lightly. There was no toddler. There were no chores, no trash to take out, no dishes to do, no beds to make or beds to take down or anything along those lines. I was alone. But it was 10 p.m., and we had to wake up early for another session, and so I did what any mature adult would do, because I'm getting to that age. Uh, I pulled out my laptop, and I started watching The Greatest Showman. Uh, the Greatest Showman is a story, is a movie that chronicles the life of P.T. Barnum. Hugh Jackman, or, or you might know him as Wolverine, he plays P.T. Barnum. And P.T. Barnum was an interesting character known for Barnum and Bailey Circus. One of the greatest shows on earth. 
And this story is very interesting because P.T. Barnum in 1841 opened up Barnum American Museum, and it was a wax museum. Now, apparently, wax museums don't pay the bills. And so he decided that he needed to kind of kick it up a notch, bring in some exotic animals, things like elephants and zebras. But more controversially, he brought in people who, maybe because of um, physical abnormalities or maybe markings on their body, maybe tattoos all over their body, they were pushed to the fringes of society. For whatever reason, society had looked at certain individuals and said, we are the normal ones and you are the outcast. You are less than us. We are better than you. And so you find yourselves outside of the circle. And P.T. Barnum stepped over that line and he employed these individuals And he utilized them to build a circus that 177 years later, you and I are watching movies and still talking about. He made a career out of stepping over cultural and social lines and giving people who have found themselves on the fringes a reason, giving them a place to belong, giving them a new sense of identity. In John chapter 4, we find Jesus doing something very similar And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Now, look, there's a lot of stuff going on in this section of Scripture. This is one of the most popular passages in the book of John. Uh, If you've been in church for any amount of time, you know exactly what we're about to say, exactly where we're going with this. But what I would challenge you to do, because there's no way we can unpack all of this in our time, I would challenge you later today to go home and really investigate this passage. Um, If you want some resources, email one of the pastors. We would love to send you some resources to really kind of crack this nut open and go deeper with it. But verse 1 says this, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. All right, John wastes no time when he is writing his gospel. Uh, Already in chapter 4, Jesus is in his early 30s. He is largely doing ministry in the Galilean region. If you have a bulletin, there's a map on the front of it. Uh, But largely doing his ministry there. And what we find Jesus doing is that he's preaching and teaching with authority. He is performing miraculous signs, and he's healing people. And whenever you start doing good in ministry, whenever a ministry is really thriving, it attracts not only followers, but it attracts naysayers, critics, people who want to put down what God is doing through you, and Jesus' ministry was no exception to this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were constantly criticizing Jesus, and while he was in Judea, he started gaining some unwanted heat, a bad rap, a bad reputation. And so he decided that he would leave Judea and head back to Galilee. Now, that is a a direct north voyage, and at this time, that would have been about a three-day walking journey. So Jesus and his disciples, they set out, and they're walking and walking and walking. And now to us as 21st century readers, this would not be an issue, but verse 4 presents a bit of a problem. Now, he had to go through Samaria. To us, this isn't a big deal. You just want to take the most efficient, convenient route. But to the Jew, this would have been a big red flag. In fact, I can't imagine the thoughts going through the 12 disciples' heads as Jesus was approaching the border of Samaria, thinking, Jesus, we need to turn. 
GPS is telling us to hang a right right here. We missed our exit, Jesus. We need to do something about this because good Jews don't go to Samaria. They don't cross that line. They don't step over that boundary. 400 years prior to this event, the Samaritans resettled a city called Shechem, and they built a temple there. They built a temple, and they began, began claiming that this temple in Shechem, not the temple in Jerusalem, was the right and God-ordained temple, and that Yahweh is best worshipped in the temple at Shechem and not Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, the Jews drove an anchor into the ground, an anchor of resentment. And they drew a social line, and they said, we don't want anything to do with these people. The Samaritans were also um, genetic Jews. They were biological Jews. But they began to intermarry. In fact, so much so that the Jewish people, the Israelites, would say that they were a mixed breed. The resentment over the course of 400 years, the rift grew so wide and the resentment so strong that Jews would not even eat from the plates that Samaritans had used. This is why the story of the Good Samaritan is so radically offensive to the listeners. Because to even come in contact with a Samaritan, you would have to do a lot of explaining if you wanted to keep your good social status. Why? Because good Jews don't go to Samaria. But Jesus crosses those lines. So the first thing that Jesus does, point one, Jesus goes where he shouldn't go. And I'm not talking intrinsically sinful places. Please don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying, what the text is teaching us is that Jesus is willing to cross over into areas that culture and society says are too far gone. That they are beyond the realm of help. Jesus is willing to go to the countries, the cities, the neighborhoods, the towns, the schools. He's willing to walk the streets and go into the businesses in order to reach people because he cares about souls over status. He cares about a person's eternity over what other people think. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, Now he came through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. This would be about a day and a half into his journey. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Have you ever been in a situation where someone maybe you look up to, uh, maybe a person of authority or power, maybe someone you really respect, and you're from two different worlds, they shouldn't know your name, and yet they speak to you? Sinclair Ferguson was here at the church a few weeks ago. And, and Sinclair, if you don't know, I mean, this, it's a big deal. In the world of theology, in the world of Christian ministry, he is a, he's a pioneer. He's a big deal. And he was speaking in the fellowship hall, and um, Claire Ripley and I were sharing a little bit about our testimony at Erskine Seminary before. And he walks right up to me, and he says, are you Charlie? And I just kind of had this moment of, me? I... I guess so. I guess that's me. Sinclair Ferguson spoke to me? It was interesting. We're from different worlds, man. I've I've got nothing to offer you, Sinclair. And surely that had to be what this woman was feeling. Sir, I have nothing to offer you because Jews don't 
speak to Samaritans. Not only that, not only was that a social taboo, single men like Jesus, they don't speak to women they don't know out in public. They don't. Jesus is really throwing social caution to the wind, but he's engaging this woman. You remember when we said that it was about noon? That's an important little detail, and that's in uh, verse 6. It's about noon. Here's one thing I know. Uh, I've been married for eight years, and this is anecdotal. This is just my experience. Please don't take offense to this, ladies. Um, Women tend to, at least the women in my life, they tend to travel in gaggles, right? Like, I've never seen my wife go to the bathroom alone. And I don't get that. Even in our home, there's a little toddler girl that follows her to the bathroom. Women, women don't fly solo. So what is this lady doing at high noon doing manual labor in the middle of a desert? She had been socially outcast, ostracized. We're about to find out why. But for whatever it is, whatever reason, she is hiding from even the people in her town. She has cut herself off from community. She has isolated herself from fellowship. And she is doing life alone. Thing number two that Jesus does, Jesus loves who he shouldn't love. Look at verse 7, or I'm sorry, skip down to 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would be giving you living water. 13, I'm going to skip down. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of life welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me some of this water so that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. This woman that Jesus engages has had five husbands and is now living with a man who is not her husband. Here's the thing. This lady gets a bad rap. Um, Whenever you hear this preach, whenever you hear this taught, this lady tends to be thrown into pretty negative light. The reality is we don't know why she's had five husbands. We don't know. They could have been divorces. The, The males could have engaged the divorce. She could have engaged the divorce. They could have all passed away. That would be very suspicious, but it could have happened. Um, the reality is we just don't know. But here's something that I feel like we can say with confidence. Jesus reaches out to a woman with a past. Do you honestly think that when this Samaritan woman was a little girl, dreaming of her wedding day, of the dress that she would pick out and the music that was going to play when she walked down the aisle, do you really think in her mind she thought, I'm going to be able to do this five times? Jesus is reaching out to a woman who every time life seems like it's on the up and up, she gets the wind taken out of her sails. And the pieces of her life that she is constantly trying to put back together, every time she gets some semblance of hope, someone comes along with a crowbar and smashes it back. And at some point after this happens, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times, you begin to start thinking, 
this is just how life is going to be. And you lose any semblance of hope. And Jesus engages her. He loves who he shouldn't love. God has this pattern all throughout the Scripture of loving people that, for all intents and purposes, shouldn't be loved. People who have been pushed out to the fringes, people who are different, people who have done things in their life, who have screwed up so badly that they appear to be too far gone. And it seems like those are the exact kinds of people that God shows His love to. You know, we tend to think of ourselves a a little too highly when we read Scripture. What I mean by that is we have this proclivity to put ourselves on the right side when we read the Bible, right? So we look at the stories of Jesus, and we see when the Pharisees and Sadducees come to criticize him, and we picture ourselves, if we were there, we'd be on his team. We'd be on Jesus' side, and we would be telling off the Pharisees and Sadducees, you guys don't get it, he's the Messiah. We look at the story of David and Goliath, and we tend to think that um, we would be David, and our Goliath is on the basketball court, and we just have to win that championship game, and we put ourselves on that side of the story. And we think that we would be this, one, this Jesus, that we would cross those social lines and we would reach out to a broken woman. But the reality is we're not David. We're the Israelites who were shivering in the corner thinking that their imminent doom was upon them. And if we're being really honest with each other here, we'd be this woman. We're the woman in this story. Because while we might look pretty on the outside, each of us will go home at some point and we know the brokenness and guilt and the sin and how far we've gone and promises that we've broken and things that we've done and ways that we have displeased God. And we know what it's like to have that self-doubt that says, how could he ever love me? How? I've gone too far. I've strayed too long. How could he love me? There's this little minor prophet in the Old Testament called Hosea. I'd recommend that you go read this book. It's a short book. And because there's young ears in the room, I'm going to ask the adults to fill in some gaps here. But Hosea is tasked by God to go and marry a woman of ill repute. And so he does. And in chapter 3, he wakes up one night and his wife, Gomer, if you're you're pregnant and you're having a little girl, Gomer is a really popular name right now. Um, So if you want to do that, Richard would love to baptize that child. Uh, Please, by all means, um, have at it. Biblical name. He wakes up and he finds that Gomer's gone. She's gone back into her old way of life. And God says to Hosea, Hosea, go and love your wife again, even though she is with another man and is an adulteress. What does Hosea do? He gets up and he goes. This is the mother of his three children. And he walks through streets that good Christian men shouldn't find themselves walking through. And he goes into stores that good Christian men shouldn't be going into. And he talks to people that good Christian men, if their small group leader saw them doing that, it would hurt their status, right? And he goes, and when he finally finds her, There's a gentleman there, and he says, sir, that's my wife, and something along the lines of, I don't care who she is, she's 15 shekels. Shekels is a form of currency. And what does Hosea do? He pays. He purchases his wife back. He pays for what is his. 
First Pres, this is a story of the gospel. This is a microcosm, a sign, a symbol of everything that Jesus has done for you and for me. The first line that Jesus crossed, the first place that he went to that he shouldn't have gone was not Samaria. It was here. It was earth. Jesus, who has always existed, there's never been a time where he was not, where he was enthroned in glory, and the cherubim and the seraphim surrounded him and proclaimed, holy, 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 that he looked at the brokenness of humanity, and he said, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go, and I'll pay for what is mine, and I'll go. And so he put on flesh. And he went into Samaria and he found this woman and he left the 99 sheep and he found the one and he went before Pontius Pilate and crowds and they brought out Barabbas and the crowds were jeering, free Barabbas. And he paid the price for him and then he went to the cross to pay for you and me. First prayer a greater Hosea has come. Amen. We are living in the days where Christ has crossed the boundary to find you and to find me in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our shame, he came to you. If that doesn't get you excited, I, I, I don't know what will. And here's where most people end, but that's not where Jesus ends. It's not where John ends. Verse 27 Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Because that would be rude. Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, these are the same people she was hiding from. These are the same people that knew her reputation. That she refused to enter into community because of decisions that she had made in the past, because of situations that she had confronted earlier in her life. These are the same people. And she runs back to him, 29. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And verse 39 goes on to tell us that many of the Samaritans believed because of the testimony of this woman. Jesus utilizes people that he shouldn't utilize. He does. This is his pattern all throughout Scripture. The 12 disciples, the 12 apostles are a ragtag, throw-together team. It is the who's who of who in the world is that. It is. Peter, John, Judas, over and over and over, the Scriptures tell us these are just a bunch of guys trying to figure this thing out. God calls Moses who, if you remember his calling, was speaking to a burning bush that was not being consumed. It was audibly talking to him, and he asks for a sign. If you are talking to a bush that is burning and not being consumed, you got your sign. That's it. What more could you need? Yet God uses them. Pretty early on in the first half of the first century, Samaria was Christianized, most of it. And if you really get back studying the history of it, it can all be linked back to one woman. Now, we don't know who this woman is, so this part's conjecture, but I I think you and I can, with a great degree of confidence, say we know exactly who that woman is. It's a woman who had an encounter with God in the flesh, and everything about her changed. And listen, I want you to hear this. This is not out of obligation that this woman is utilized. 
This is not, oh, Jesus freed me, now I have to go and begrudgingly submit and share this good news, come and see. This is transformation. This is the overflow of grace in her heart going out to share this good news to a dying world. And if he can use her, if he can use Paul, who was closer to extinguishing the flame of Christianity than anyone else in history has ever been, he can use you. Let me hold two truths in front of you that we as Christians need to remember. One, you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. There's two types of people in this room. There's people who just agreed with that and people who didn't. If you didn't, that's pride, so there you go. (laughs) You are more sinful than you could ever imagine. Two, you are far more loved than you can ever comprehend. And because of that, because of transformation, he'll use you. And he invites you into the grand narrative of his story. What if our lives were marked? Everybody kind of has a catchphrase. And the more you hang around people, the more you realize that. What if our catchphrase, the, the way we viewed our life, what if the lens in which we interacted with people was this? Come and see. The first recorded words of Jesus in the book of John, and this woman quotes them directly. Come and see. Let's pray. Father, this morning we stand in awe that you would use us. Lord, we know what we've done. We know how far we've gone. We know how sinful we are, and yet you call us beloved. Oh, Father, may we stand in awe of that. And out of that, out of joy, not obligation, may we open ourselves up to be utilized by you. Lord, convict us, call us, change us. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So I am